Titus chapter 2. Now, as you know, Titus has been a very, it's been very, very interesting to me to note that the, there's a tremendous onus on church leaders here to lead well and to lead rightly. Uh, and they, it, seems to, it seems to me, it's clear from the scriptures, that this person, this person who Paul is, is identifying, in this case he's writing directly to Titus, but he's also, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, speaking to elders down through the ages, this person has to have a tremendous dependence on the Lord, and the Lord has to have cultivated in them a tremendous character. And then they're to, to deploy that character in church-building ministry. And then they're to send that church out into the world to make a genuine and deep impact. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on that, but that's exactly what's been going on. Hey, have this kind of character. Be ready to deal with these kind of characters. And then here's how you shape the character of the church. Here's how you create a culture in the church, a culture where not only are you ready to deal with the fierce wolves that would attack the church, but you're also ready to help the flock have a culture of shaping and teaching and receiving. And tonight is just a continuation of that as we finish up chapter number two. What I would say that really intrigues me about this is it puts us in this position where we're always motivated both by what has happened and what will happen. And I find that very interesting. We'll get to that in just a second. Let me share with you one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He says there, quote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. He goes on with these examples. I pick it up later on, quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, neighbors and friends, you have desires which this world won't answer. Now, I, I don't know how, how many of you guys like college football or football in general, but one of the funnest things for me this year has been watching Deion Sanders. Now, whether they win or lose, he's a hoot to me. And uh, to his credit right now, he has taken great uh, intentionality at praising God and talking about his dependence on God. But I'm not here for the spiritual content. That dude is a nut. And I have enjoyed him. But one of my favorite stories about Deion Sanders who you may be aware of because of his popularity this year, it actually happened back in the 90s. They, uh, they won a Super Bowl. He won a Super Bowl, and he went home that night, and he basically woke up in the middle of the night or, or couldn't sleep late into the night because he basically said, is that all this is? I've been pursuing this my whole life. Is that all this is? He had reached the pinnacle of his personal success, team success. He was at the pinnacle of his sport. As a matter of fact, to this day, he's the only guy to uh, hit a home run and score a touchdown in the major leagues and the NFL on the same day. Pretty incredible. But he came to this conclusion, man, is that all there is to this? I think a lot of us have experienced that, maybe not through Super Bowls, but you've built the house, you have the picket fence, 
uh, you've met some other human or helped you generate other humans, and you have a job and have reached some certain salary range, and you know, you got two cars in the garage, and you know, you got a dog and a cat, and you know, your very own zero turn lawnmower, and uh, you sort of saying, wait a minute, is, if this is the American dream and I've achieved it, is, is, is this what I was, is this it? It's not that these things aren't markers of success. They're more like markers of blessing. It's not that they're not worthless. Somebody say amen. It's just often when we've succeeded somewhere, it simply reveals that we were looking for something nothing else could have answered anyway. And that can be, a, that can be tough. That can feel like you're running into a wall. That's why I love Deion Sanders' testimony. He, he just says it. I got there, man. I got there. I got there, and I was like, is that all? Well, I think the vision that is cast for us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 tonight, are the sort of things that point us to the pursuit that truly does satisfy. And what I think is interesting about it is it doesn't matter what color you are, say amen. It doesn't matter what nationality you are, say amen. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, say amen. This is a pursuit for humanity that can catch humanity right where it is, Call it into the audience of heaven and say, now, let me show you how to live. Let me show you how to live. Let me show you how to live in the midst of the mess. In his confessions, Augustine wrote, O God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I think that's true for more of us than we would confess. Our hearts are restless. Let's just take a quick encouraging poll. How many of you guys can identify with that saying, you've had a restless heart? How many of you guys, uh, wait a minute, let me find, where's my wife? Care, find me. Oh, hey, baby. Wow, they didn't let you have a back row tonight. Okay. Y'all will have to apologize for that later, okay? Um, how many of you guys uh, are restless sleepers? Anybody? Uh, does anybody here sleep with a restless sleeper? Wow, you really want to testify. Matthew went up. I'm telling you what, Hulk Hogan's got nothing on care. When she's going to sleep, man, she is, she is putting on some kind of wrestling match. I don't know what it is. She has to flip, do some somersaults, and... You know, you, one moment your head is over here, you, you know, you nod off and it's over there. And uh, I don't know, man. Well, I think, I think uh, some of us who are restless sleepers might see what it's like for people who have restless lives. And here's what God wants us to be. People who are at rest in him but are in motion for him. Aha. Should I say that again? God wants to make us people who are at rest in him, but in motion for him. Let's look at Titus chapter number two. Remembering the elder is still being charged to teach these folks the God life. Titus chapter two, beginning in verse number 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when, church? In the present age. Is godly living just for heaven? Dispense of that notion, okay? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, indeed, we have a wonderful congregation, a congregation that does not dissuade us from teaching truth, does not discourage us in solid exposition, does not keep us from telling the parts of the Bible that clash with the culture. We have a good congregation. Father, we have faced many challenges, not the least of which is the seeming closure of the world during COVID. Might these words be the sort of words that begin to wake us from our congregational care culture and put us out into the community in a fresh way? Might we be ignited to be in motion for you, even as we're settled to be at rest in you? In Jesus, I pray, amen and amen. We actually, Shannon, if you'll help me, back up a little bit. It was, it was I who done the disservice here. I actually want to start in another book of the Bible. I want to start right here. Would you guys, just so you'll hear yourself saying, would you read these couple of verses with me, would you? Together, let's go. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That leads us right to our first point. We, as the people of God, we live with blessed hope, that is, eager expectation in the return of Jesus. Let the people of God say amen. amen. This must shape our lives. It must shape our lives. Now, I've told you guys over the past few months especially as we were preaching through the book of the Revelation, we won't miss the signs. Church, say amen. amen. We won't miss the signs. But we also will not know exactly how fast those signs begin and zenith. Now, we do know of the seven years of tribulation and all that stuff, but who says he can't get us from the day before tribulation to wide open tribulation in a day? And what I'm saying is we, we, we should take that, uh, we should take that, that teaching from Revelation with a certain sort of wisdom. We shouldn't be carried around on every wind of doctrine that the evening news tries to give us to unseat our restedness, to make us nervous, to make us bite at each other like ravenous wolves. We shouldn't let this world shape us and shake us. Somebody say amen. All right, I'm going to stop cueing y'all. Y'all got to get right. At the same time, we should humbly, soberly, with, with great spiritual and emotional sobriety, hear the clear warning of the Lord that he will come, and he will come like a thief in the night. Several ways he's warned us. One of my favorite is the passage, and I won't go there, because if I go there, I've got to go there, is the passage where the bridesmaids, some keep oil in their lamp and some don't. 
What a powerful warning. Powerful. We live with blessed hope, church. That is eager expectation in the return of Jesus. And I have something I want to submit to you as humbly as I know how. If the, if the, the promise of the second coming of Jesus does not shape your Christianity, something's not right. And I'm just submitting that to you humbly. Something's not right. Something's not right. Secondly, now let's turn to the Titus passage, and we'll actually come back to that Hebrews toward the end. Secondly, we live in eager expectation between the two appearings of Jesus. Now let me take a moment and settle down here. You saw in verse number 11 that the Bible tells us grace appeared. Amen? Grace appeared. Unmerited favor appeared. Unmerited favor appeared. An unmerited goodness of God has come to us. And what was it? It's not a what, it's a he. Look back at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's Jesus. He came. He was actually born of the flesh of a woman. God took on flesh. And in the fullness of time, came forth through Virgin Mary. He came and lived a holy life, fully surrendered, obedient to God. He laid down his glory that he might take on flesh to identify with us, to live righteously so that when he went to the cross, his death would be a righteous death and count for many. Grace has appeared. But did you notice also that another appearing is going to happen? Did anybody notice that? Look at verse number 13. The grace of God has appeared, and verse 13 tells us that we're waiting for the appearing of glory. Now, who, who got, um, not that anybody ever picks up on my silly art, but who's got a bulletin with a clothesline on it? Hold it up and show it to me. All right? Now, I don't know if anybody, before I told you this, could have ever guessed why I made that little artwork. You know why? Because I believe, we used to move a lot. We moved all around. Sometimes multiple times in a year. We moved all over the place. Uh, my, my brother's here. He'll tell you. He will tell you. Sometimes it didn't even make sense to pack up. How long are we going to be here? Who knows? But we didn't have a dryer. You know, a, a clothes dryer, an indoor clothes dryer. We always had a washing machine. And we dried clothes hanging outside on the clothesline. And when we moved from one place to the next, one of the first things we had to do was to either repair a clothesline or or, or put a clothesline up. Why? Because it was the dryer. And there was always a minimum of six people in our house. Just go talk to the acres. Go talk to the carvers. Talk to people with big families. If you have a bunch of people in the house, you're always washing everything. Everything. Man, it touched Matthew's heart right there. <laughs> or talk to one teenage girl who wears six people's outfits every day. Well, I saw one lady go, yeah, that's true. All right, so we had to establish something. We had to establish a left-hand post and a right-hand post. Sometimes one end was a tree and the other end was a post. But we had to put up this clothesline. I'm telling you in the Christian life, what our lives hang on are these two appearings. And these two appearings ought to catch us in such a tension, T-E-N-S-I-O-N, such a tension that they've always got our Attention. 
they should always have our attention. Because what happens if one end falls? The clothes are in the dirt. These are where our blessed hopes are hung. That I've been led into the family of God, adopted into the family of God by the grace of God through the work of the Lord Jesus. And that his work will culminate at his return. We live in eager expectation. The grace of God has appeared. The glory of God will appear. And as, as we saw from Hebrews chapter 9, when he appears the second time, it's not going to be to deal with sinners. It will be to collect saints. Hello. Did you guys notice when we read that passage from Hebrews 9 that he will, he will come and save those who are Eagerly waiting for him. There is a lot buried in those words. I mean a lot. It's more than just keeping some, some oil in the lamp. It is also watching the tent flap. Not only do I have it ready, I want him to come. Jesus also speaks quite a bit about what he expects our work to be. I volunteer for Will Bailey High School Club on Thursday. And, and I don't know whether Will Bailey or Jordan Pickerel wrote the lesson, but the lesson this past week was on the parable of the talents, the one where, where Jesus talks about giving out five, two, and one. And what we were able, uh, Charlie, you'll remember you were there, we were able to point out that he expected all of each one of those people, each one of those people, for all of them to deploy all of what they had been given. Wow, that's, that's radical. That is hyper-radical. He meant for them to use, to invest, to deploy every bit of what he had put in their care. There is so much to be said about the expectation of the master in that parable. And there is a biting question to us. Some of us think about our giving finances as simply a tie. Some of us think about the way we spend our time as I went to church. Some of us think about serving as I did that. And what Jesus would want kingdom-oriented people to do is to consider how to deploy 100% of all of it. And if we could ever, if we could ever absorb that, that is really, that's really awesome living. That's awesome living. That is the sort of living that is fulfilling. So we should, we should realize these tensions. And we should, we should be as wet clothes hung between these tensions. And we should pay attention to these tensions. We should always be remembering how and why we are forgiving and forgiven and adopted. And we should always be remembering where God is going with all of this. Thirdly, thirdly, we live in eager expectation, looking back and looking ahead and laboring in between. I think it would be a very honest assessment to say that these verses basically and foundationally give us the incentive 
to live a life that pleases God. Live a life that pleases God. And I would say that within these verses are the promise of the power to live a life that pleases God. Both here in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and there in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, there's a connection between the past and future work of Christ. And what hangs in the balance, in the tension of the future and past work of Christ is the present work of the church. Did anybody notice what the Bible says we should be doing? Just go back and take a gander at verse 12. First off, we're to be a people in training. Isn't that cool? We're to be a people in training. When people are doing physical training, they, they want everyone to know. Did you, you, you know I'm right, don't you? You have that friend. Amen? A couple weeks ago, Michael Tuck joined the gym. And he goes to the gym for three days. And he comes to a wedding and he's going around flexing on everybody. I joined the gym. I wanted him to feel good. And I just grabbed that joker like a rock brother. You know why? Because that brother had been in training. And when you're in training, you expect to have results. Amen? But train. Why is that? Michael, why are they laughing at you, man? He's but How many push-ups can you do without stopping, Michael? He does. He can, he can, do, he can do like 100 push-ups without stopping. I can barely eat one push-up without getting brain freeze. Barbara said, did you just say used to, Barbara? Whoa. Got called out, Michael. But listen, do you notice there's some shocking things, I think, that we're being trained in. First, we're being trained in how to renounce ungodliness. Oh, boy, do you realize that what he's calling us to as a lifestyle is culture clash. It's personal comfort clash. I can, I can talk about all kinds of things, but... But, but what about some, let's say, for example, television shows we love? And we say, hey, I'm going to take serious this, seriously this, re, this training to renounce ungodliness. So I'm going to look at this stuff and say, is this glorify God? Does it help me grow? We're going to have to cut off most of the things we watch on TV. I don't know about all of it, but a bunch of it. We at least have to be more thoughtful. Am I right about that? We at least have to be more thoughtful. How many of you people like me lo love music? Well, me and my brother were riding down the road, and, and uh, somebody's come out with a bluegrass version of Running with the Devil by uh, Van Halen. I was seeing if anybody would confess. And before you know it, David had dropped me off at the house, and I'm, I'm, I'm going around the house, and I'm pulling my laptop out, and in banjo-esque tunology, I'm suddenly singing, running with the devil. Like, wait a minute. No, I'm not. <laughs> and I realized how quickly I had fallen back into this, this old habit of singing without thinking. I was like, whoa, that would be a great sermon illustration. Yeah, that's why it happened, Lord. I think we could name all kinds of things. I just think we ought to see that part of what the Holy Ghost is doing in your life is training you to renounce 
ungodliness. What else is he training us to do? To not only renounce ungodliness, which might be an ideology, but also to renounce worldly passions. Ruh-roh. I might could agree with God about some things that I feel tempted to on my screen space. But what about the root of what brought me to the screen space? I know there's young children, and I'll make you have to explain this, but I'm talking about pornography. You say, yes, that is bad, but he also wants to train us how to not let that passion send us to the place it can be satisfied. He wants to address the passion. Isn't that wild? So you're, you're saying, man, the grace of God has brought me to the family of God, and I want to go to heaven. That sounds awesome. And in the meantime, I'm going to train you how to be a whole new person. I could have been, could I, can I just go to heaven, please? What else? Now, this next one hurts everybody in some way, right? Training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled. Okay, I'm fat. I don't know if y'all, nobody's noticed? Praise God, y'all are such good people. Did you know that, biblically speaking, that, that drunkenness to alcohol is the same as, as uh, gluttony to food? Uh, I'm probably the only one here. I sometimes eat my emotions. I'm stressed out and I eat. I'm happy and I eat. Oh, and y'all can tell I've been stressed out, and I've been happy. Uh, sometimes when I'm confused or feel inadequate, help me out. What, what do I do? I eat. Sometimes when I'm bored, it's really tough for me to face this because those worldly passions, God wants to get to the root of them, and he wants me to start exercising self-control. And it's not just an idea. He wants me to agree with him. He wants to empower me. He wants to train me. And I want to tell you something, church. I find it very difficult. This is just the one thing you guys see readily as I stand before you. I am open enough and honest enough to tell you there are also things that are not so easy to see. Where I need self-control in. I know I'm in training. He's also wanting to train me to be upright and godly. I hope you guys see that God wants to put it in the pot and cook it. And the it is me. The it is you. God wants to, in between these glorious and grace-filled appearings, to shape us into the image of Jesus. What a goal for life. And then not just that, not just that, but go on the other side of verse 13 and see that he, he gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. So he's training us. He's bringing us out of lawlessness. He is purifying us. And he's making us a very special people, people of his own possession. He said all that to say what? Who notices it? These people 
are not just different by look, they're different by act. These people are zealous for good works. God is working on your inside game. He's working on your outside game. He's working on your community game, and he's working on your ministry and missions game. In other words, between us coming into his grace and as we wait on his glory, God is making for himself a very special people who are becoming like his son so that they might be on mission like his son. Now that's a vision for life. And so he tells, you know, he tells uh, Titus, he says, yeah, j- just do this. <laughs> just, okay, I'm the only one. If Casey was here, he would be laughing. Here's your job description. Be a great dude. Deal with all the problems. Make all the older men listen to you. Make all the older women listen to you. Make all the younger dudes listen to you. Make all the younger women listen to you. Get everybody in the training where they stop being worldly and get them on mission with me. No problem. So now some church can come give me a job description. I'll be like, have you read Titus? I, was, I preached at a church's homecoming service in Granville County this morning, and Carol testified. An old friend was there, and he taps me on the shoulder right before I'm going to preach, and he says, no pressure. And I was like, yeah, you're right. There's no pressure on me. You know, I, I literally, I gave him two answers. I said, if God doesn't do this, I can't do this. And also, I'm not the pastor of church. I'm going to say stuff and leave. <laughs> and you'll have to deal with my comments. If I'd have been standing, Carson, I'd have hit it. No pressure, right? But here. If he would have said that, I would have said, man, I feel it. I feel it. I feel my calling. But is it just on me? I think we would see that it's a partnership between leadership and the people and between all and God. So what I might do is say, hey, here's something to analyze and perhaps lead you to some renouncing. And you say, great, let me analyze it and possibly do some renouncing. Here's this great work that we could go do. You say, great. Can I give instead of going? I say, no, you should give and go. So so we're in this dynamic relationship, one with another and together with God. And I do feel the pressure. And I don't want the pressure to let up. I just want you to feel it with me. Am I making sense to anybody? If you happen to be a visitor, this is some of my best preaching, if you were looking to analyze it. (laughs) So, that leaves us first with a burning implication. I I, I, I typed until just a while ago. (laughs) Uh, I was was shortening this sermon so, you know, ferociously that care... Kara actually got Rachel to come pick her up. She was at the office with me. Because there is actually a lot of implications. Right? There's at least this one. It's big. Like, it's a really burning implication. Is the fact that Jesus is coming back shaping your life? 
Because what he's saying is that really should shape your life. Amen? All right, but that leads to some plaguing questions. Some very plaguing questions. The, the, the first is this. Who will be saved at the second coming? Now, we won't turn back there unless you already have your Bibles open. You can feel free to turn back there. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, at the end of the verse, tells us that he is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I believe what Titus chapter 2 does for us is describes the lifestyle of the eagerly waiting. Right? Anybody who's old enough to remember television in, in the 80s can remember lifestyles of the rich and famous. Right? I hated that show. You know why? Because it's such a stark contrast between all that they had they could show off and nothing I had that I even wanted to see myself. I, I didn't watch it, but I, you know, I thought it was funny, right? Um, but you want to say, what is the evidence of your rich in, richness and famousness? And they would show stuff, right? What would the evidence be that you're eagerly awaiting Christ's coming? That's a good question, isn't it? I think Titus sort of describes the lifestyle of the eagerly waiting. They're the sort of people who are in the training grid with God. And that's rough and tumble. And it's the same to some degree for all of us, and it gets real personal for every one of us. I shared with you some of my struggle. If we could sit and talk, you would share with me some of yours. We would all see we're very much in a hard process. But it's good, I think, because I know what God's goal is. And I believe the lifestyle of the eagerly awaiting is a lifestyle also not just of the negative or the retreating or the renouncing. I believe it's also the positive, right? We're not living for ourselves. We're not living according to our own rules. We are living for the Lord. And things like foster care and adopt, adoptive care and, and, and living together in community and reaching the lost and digging wells and dry places and, and the host of other things that plague humanity, they intrigue us because we've been called to be excited and energetic about the needs of the world. I don't want to say that it isn't about the gut-wrenching work of personal transformation, because it is, amen? But it's not limited to that. It's also about getting busy for the Lord. So the second, plague, oh, somebody put it up there. I hadn't looked. I should watch what's going on. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> also, if you're a guest, I don't get any better than this, Okay. Second plaguing question is, do you eagerly await Christ's coming? Now, this is, this, is, this is personal. That first one is, who will be saved? That, that sort of gets you looking around, right? The second one gets you looking in. And you say, what does that look like? I, I tell you, do you, first off, I just ask you, do you ever think about it? My, my parents were notorious workers. And they wanted us to work, and they always had a list of things, and most of the time it wasn't written. 
Sometimes it was, right? But it was always things. But if it was something written, you better make sure that was checked off the list. And what we would do is think about what time mom and dad would come home on a normal situation. All right, you're getting off at 3.30, you'll be home at 10 to 4. The problem with trying to live like that as it pertains to the second coming is he hasn't given us a time. So we can't adopt that sort of childish mentality where I'll stack up my leisure and accomplish my work right before I'm discovered. We want to live at the pace of full surrender. Let me say that again. We want to live at the pace of full surrender. So do you even think about the truth of Christ's return? And when that truth comes to your mind, does your heart want it? Do you want to see Jesus? Now, if you're like me, you got enough body pains. Any, any amens on that one? I want to see Jesus. And if you're anything like me, maybe I'm the only one here, you know, I sometimes get sick of myself. Does, it, does anybody identify with me? I want to see Jesus. <laughs> I'm a little bit tired of me. <laughs> I keep telling the same jokes and making the same mistakes. One keeps being funny. The other one doesn't. But when I've read this book and I believe this book, and I believe this book is the measuring stick for faith and practice, this book has painted the picture of God in such a way that I just flat out can't wait to see him. I have so many reasons that when I think about his coming, I echo in worship with the Apostle John. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Carabos went to D.C. The conference was supposed to last till noon on Saturday. You know, she skipped out on them. And when that girl rolled in this building yesterday at lunchtime, I had to stifle my happiness. She's like, hey, honey, because she can't stifle hers, you know. I'm like, what's good, girl? <laughs> I don't want to live as a cool Christian. I want to be excited about Jesus coming back. Do you pray for his coming? Do you ask him? Do you beg him? Do you long for it? And does the thoughts of his coming stoke the fires of your service? It's a very personal question. Do you eagerly await his coming? There's so much more I would want to say. That's all I'm going to say. Because I believe we need that very pointed personal question to land in our souls today. It's not that I'm going to give you some cheap out and tell you, just say this prayer, bow your head, raise your hand, and it'll be okay. Because I think a holy restlessness needs to be stirred in us that makes us vibrant in worship and excited about service. I think we ought to weep over the loss, and I think we ought to work to make Jesus known. This is the life we're called to. And it is no wonder why so much accomplishment in so many other places falls flat. Because we're called to know God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're made for. Do you eagerly await Christ's coming? Maybe you're sitting here today and you say, man, 
I don't know that grace has meant anything to me. Well, I want it to mean something to you. So let me just remind you that God's grace, his unmerited favor, is that he sent Jesus to die on a cruel cross, and he accepts Jesus' gift of himself as a payment for all sin. Right? So all sin, there's enough of Jesus' righteous blood spilt to pay for all sin, but not everybody takes the guilt, the, the gift. Then they buried Jesus because he actually died. Does anybody know? They buried him on what day of the week? Who knows? Friday. What day of the week was the resurrection? Well, it wasn't 72 hours, but it was parts of three days. On the third day, he rose. He defeated death. That's power, y'all. The cross was power in check. He meekly went to be a sacrifice. The resurrection was power on display. He got up from the grave. Wow. And what that tells me is that Jesus has paid for sin and Jesus has defeated death. And the Bible says when Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. In the same way, the Apostle Paul tells us if we'll believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says we'll be saved. This grace is open. And I'm not trying to be theatrical, but it won't always be open. That's why when he appears in glory, the grace door is closed. So it's open to you right now. Would you believe on the Lord Jesus? Or maybe you've believed sometime in the past few weeks or months, and you would like to obey him by baptism. What he wants you to do is that wherever you are on your path of walking to him, he wants you to take the next sensible step. You say, yeah, man, I believe I'm baptized. Will you re-enter training? Fervently, seriously. Will you, will you get to work? You say, I don't know what to do. Come talk to me. I think this is a moment and a place where the Spirit will prod our spirit because he wants to bring grace-filled confrontation to each of us. Do you eagerly await Christ's coming? Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a fantastic passage. What a confrontational passage. What a blessed passage. You would have gospel Bible teachers to exhort your people to be in the gym and to be on the field. Training and working. Truth be known, many of us have many things where we need your blessed help, and we humbly bring them to you in a fresh way. Help your weak children. Help us as we even wrestle with how to respond to you. And then, God, there are some that they're not even between the poles. But tonight, you might lead them to accept your gift of grace, to accept Jesus. As you lead, Lord, help us to respond. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.